This is not the media. This is hell. Today on This is Hell, there's a problem within conservatism, and whether you are a conservative or not, that problem might become a huge problem for you, for me, for all of us, and really, really soon, if not already. It all stems from conservatives' desire to placate their Confederate flag-waving anti-immigration pro-anti-vaxxer far-right racist contingent that the wealthy need to have as their foot soldiers at protests and rallies to give their movement the veneer of working class legitimacy and support. No, their wealthy masters do not want to end immigration as their co-opt rank and file do. The rich just want to make life as precarious as possible, make life as vulnerable, as miserable as it can for immigrants, thus keeping them a low-wage workforce to augment corporate investor and shareholder profits. But to do so, they stoked fear and hatred toward immigrants, a kind of dehumanizing rhetoric that can lead to, yes, fascism. Now with the far right guiding conservatism, Trump supporters are left with a politics of domination, humiliation, and exploitation. In a few minutes, we'll have the return of journalist and writer Brendan O'Connor, who wrote the Baffler magazine piece, The Accelerating Gyre, The American Right Wants to Get On with the Cleansing Fire. Brendan is a freelance journalist working on a book about immigration, capitalism, and the far right for Haymarket Books. He's also a member of the Strike Wave Editorial Collective, which you can find out more about at thestrikewave.com, and a New Economies Reporting Project Fellow, which you can find out more about at neweconomy.net. This is Brendan's second appearance on This Is Hell. He was on our show back in October of 2018 to talk about his Baffler article. Boys to Men about the far right, Proud Boys. You can find out more about Brendan at brendan-oconnor.com and you can find our interview with Brendan at our website, thisishell.com when you search on either Brendan or O'Connor. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you, sir? Good morning, sir. It's so great to see you on a morning. It's been a very long time. It's early. I got the oil out. Kind of feel a little creaky. <laughs> I bet. I felt creaky this morning, too. There were snaps and crackles happening as I got out of the shower today. So you're a production manager who works with musicians, works with museums, works with theaters. How are the arts affected by the pandemic? Well, we had Michael Roper on the show, and exactly. he's really afraid that what's going to happen is we're going to lose all independent restaurants and bars. Do you think we're going to sure. lose independent uh, theaters, too? Well, I mean, it's not a, uh, a race or a... Uh a competition to see who's worst, <laughs> worst affected, right? But uh, it's pretty bad, yeah. The, uh, you know, 80% of all the artists in the performing arts are uh, are essentially independent contractors. Right. And, and uh, so they're all completely out of work. And obviously, if you have a theater, you, you know, you, you can't have people there. No. So it's, uh, Is anybody doing anything like trying to adapt by doing outdoor theater or anything like a, that? A little bit. I've seen a little bit of that. And certainly a lot of people have been trying to do streaming events and, uh, you know, like readings or even plays, uh, you know, at the very at the very beginning of the pandemic, at the middle and end of March, some people were streaming their the remains of their last, you know, live productions. Crazy. And, and that was that was really cool, but you know I don't know. There's there's a, um, you know maybe a, a point where you get over 
overzoomed or whatever. Right. Uh, and uh, that may not be, you know, so great. But um, but museums are pretty safe, right? Sure. I mean, the you know where I work, we've we, we've been really lucky, and everyone's uh, they've been taking care of everyone, and and but we're not doing any live performances. So, right. You know that's gone. I mean, it's really it's really super detrimental to anybody who has. Uh, a physical building, you know, right. like like anybody who owns a building or has to pay for rent or, or whatever, that they're they're the ones who are going to be the hardest hit because uh, you have overhead and and utilities or whatever, just like Michael, and you have nobody, you know, no one can use the building, so it's it's completely, uh, you know, you're not making any money and and you just have an empty building. Whereas there are a lot of itinerant theater companies and. And they may fare a little bit better because they don't have any of that, that overhead. Because they haven't had as much success. That's pretty well, incredible. Well, yeah, not, not success, but they don't have the overhead. <laughs> right, right. Sure. But not the excess, success and be able to you know, afford yeah, a building. Exactly. You know, that's I pretty, mean, that's really good. There are a few companies that have like a really good board and a really good patron and subscriber, s- subscribers who are helping to mitigate all those costs. So, right. So some, you know, if you have a really good... Uh, back, backing and, and uh, that kind of situation, they're, they're, they may do well. They, they may or at least get through it. You know? <laughs> That's what I mean. All right, uh, let's just uh, move. Oh, wait, didn't you have some silly trivia for me? I do. All right, let's hear it. So I had to do some research and, and upon my and a couple weeks ago or whatever, and during the research I found that, uh, you know, the uh, did you know yes. that the Chicago Police Department yes. has a football team? <laughs> I think I did know that. I think that they play the fire department every year. <laughs> so that was certainly part of my question. And, and but the the uh, um, you know so like team sports. I'm not a big sporto, right? But you know I'm totally down with team sports and and uh, our recreational sports. And if my organization had a uh, you know a recreational sports team, I'd probably go out for it or whatever. That, right. That's cool. That's totally fine. But I, I imagine that. You know, for a community outreach type situation, right? Well, yeah. I mean, sure. Who who do who do they play? I mean, I'm sure maybe maybe it's like charity events <laughs> or, or whatever. felons or something. I don't know. But but here's the trivia question. Okay. You know, so if you were like a public facing mm-hmm. organization, yes, and your like mandate is to serve and protect, yes, what would you name your football team <laughs> if you were the Chicago Police Department? <laughs> Well, it probably wouldn't be something like the Punishers, but I have a feeling that's what it is. What is the Chicago Police Department's football team name? The Enforcers. Oh, God. Jesus. Uh, and, see, this is hell. Real quick update after Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot played tough for the cameras, saying she would not allow federal troops to invade and occupy Chicago like they did and are doing in Portland, Oregon. The mayor backpedaled yesterday. Shortly after our show ended, the mayor announced what I understand at this point, and I caveat, caveat that, is that the Trump administration is not going to foolishly deploy unmanned agents to the streets of Chicago. We have information that allows us to say, at least at this point, that we don't see a Portland-style deployment coming to Chicago. Unlike what happened in Portland, what we will receive is resources that are going to plug into the existing federal agencies that we work with on a regular basis to help manage and suppress violent crime. I've been very clear that we welcome actual partnership 
but we do not welcome dictatorship. Apparently, she doesn't realize that she's right now in a partnership with what looks a lot like a dictatorship. Awesome. Partnership with federal shock troops sent into Chicago to intimidate the public and create the impression of, for everyone outside of Chicago that the troops are necessary, legitimizing them when they're not necessary and their actions are not legitimate. Not one word from the mayor about addressing the roots of crime in Chicago. Not one syllable about poverty, structural racism, nothing. Exactly what you would expect from a former federal prosecutor who represented the state in cases against the people. This week's question, Mel, is what will finally unite the left? What will finally unite the left? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can check out the This Is Hell face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways we can help. You can help out completely. Listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answers to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet them to us. You can email them to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner after Jeff Dorchin delivers the moment of truth. Again, this week's question from hell is what will finally unite the left? Adam says we'll be united when we're all working together in the labor camps, making concrete for the new capital that'll be located in northern Alaska. Ramon says class first. What will you finally unite the left? Stephen says the left is just a construct. Jin says, depends what you mean by left. Aren't we all out on the streets for black lives to defund the police? I mean, except for those class reductionists that think that a racial demand isn't a working class demand. Those a-holes. So I guess I withdraw my suggestion. Suggestion. Damn. No, F them. They don't count as the left. Jin then also offers the heat death of the universe. What will finally unite the left? Dennis says when Twitter goes bankrupt. Mark says mingled ashes at the crematoria. Patricia says gas chambers. Mika responds, the circular less than lethal firing squad. What will finally unite the left? Krimsky says the sticky stuff. Michael says the romanticism of the apocalypse. Joshua replies, disappointment about not winning a face mask. <laughs> David says the left may be united when it's just one person, but there is no certainty. And Sheldon responds, Falafel? Because there's an image of falafel for this question from hell. And finally, Jason replies to this week's question from hell again. What will finally unite the left? Jason says, Mass Graves. We will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page or tweet them to us at This Is Hell Radio. We will be announcing this week's winner at the end of the show tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now during tomorrow's Moment of Truth. Jeff wants to sell you another improved Fascism, live from Hangover Country, this is hell. Yesterday we shared feedback we got from listeners in Kyrgyzstan and Senegal, and I got to tell you, those emails had an effect on myself and Alex that I have never seen in the, I don't know, six, seven years of doing the show with Alex. After the show, we found both of us actually, get this, smiling, actually happy after a show, which never happens. We're usually so traumatized by the content that we're in a, a kind of a shell shock, 
Hell, I'm so physically and emotionally exhausted after doing an episode of This Is Hell that I have to go home and sleep it off. But yesterday was different. Elks and I actually allowed ourselves to feel good about the show because we both absolutely loved the idea that people were walking around Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, listening to This Is Hell, that listeners were enjoying the show at an old poster of ours in Senegal. So I want to thank Erica and Sonetta again for your emails and kind words. You really, really, really just filled us with joy. And yes, we are following up on your guest suggestions, and hopefully we will be featuring them on the show in the next couple of weeks. You can email us, direct message us via Twitter, or use Facebook Messenger to send us your thoughts, your comments, your criticism, both constructive and destructive, your guest and topic suggestions. And if you do, we'll likely read them on the air. While it's not from an exotic locale like Kyrgyzstan or Senegal, we did get an email from Tom, who often joins us for This Is Hell Office Hours, which we hope to start holding again sometime in the next year. And Tom's from the neighborhood. Tom always sends us fantastic guest suggestions and does, again, writing Hi Chuck, Hi Alex. Thanks for continuing to produce and deliver such high-caliber interviews during the current pandemic. I hope it it never ends. I mean... This is hell, not the pandemic, lol. I happened upon the compelling article, this compelling article on Al Jazeera by history professor Mark Levine. He has an intriguing take on the history of capitalism. He presents a frame of reference from which we might view its contemporary manifestation of neoliberalism, which he asserts is morphing into what he calls necro-capitalism. Sounds pretty hellish. You may want to consider interviewing him, perhaps. Tom then shares a link to Levine's article, Mark Levine's article, from neoliberalism to necrocapitalism in 20 years, he concludes whether it is academia or think tanks, Haaretz or The Guardian, Noam Chomsky or Naomi Klein, or myriad progressive international NGOs, all have put the blame on neoliberalism, hoping that coronavirus spells the end of the neoliberal order and the uniquely American virus that is neoliberalism. But the focus on the neoliberal present is literally misplaced, for the current system is merely the latest iteration of a 500-year matrix of forces that continues to shape the modern world to get today. Again, that's from Mark Levine's article at Al Jazeera, From Neoliberalism to Necrocapitalism in 20 years. Now, I know we've had Yasha Levine, Bruce Levine, Judith Levine, all on our show, and I swear Mark was on at least once, if not more, prior to the hard drive crash of 2015, which made it so all of our shows prior to that year are still not online. That's why we're raising money to rebuild our archives. So I was digging through the archives and I found our January 14th, 2006 conversation with University of California Irvine historian Mark Levine, author of Why They Don't Hate Us, Lifting the Veil on the Axis of Evil. So Tom, because you have sent us so many excellent guest suggestions over the years this week on Patreon, we will be sharing that interview with Mark when he was on to discuss his then-just-published articles, Christian Peacemakers and the Failure of the Left, Time for a Really New Foreign Policy, and A True Mission Accomplished in 2006. That's listener feedback. You can email us at chuckatthisishell.com, alexatthisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, message us via Facebook. This is hell. Coming up, the many contradictions on the right are leading us straight toward fascism. And more of your answers to this week's question, Mel, which is, again, what will finally unite the left? What will finally unite the left? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing is 
Richard Norwood, Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio so clearly, and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This Is Hell conservatism has embraced a politics of humiliation, domination, and exploitation in a desperate attempt to satisfy the business interests that bankrolls their political project while accommodating the far-right hate of Confederate flag-waving neo-Nazis who support their wealthy masters. That is, until those bottom-line priorities conflict with their message of hate. Returning to once again guide us through the ugliness of rising fascism in the United States, journalist and writer Brendan O'Connor wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Accelerating Gyre, The American Right Wants to Get On with the Cleansing Fire. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brendan. Hey, how's it going? Good. This is Brendan's second appearance on This Is Hell. He was on our show back in 2018 to talk about his Baffler article, Boys to Men, about the far right Proud Boys. Find out more about Brendan at his website, brendan-oconnor.com, and you can follow Brendan on Twitter at underscore Grendon. You start by writing, though it was just one part of Donald Trump's disastrously incompetent and cruel response to the coronavirus crisis, the president's executive order on immigration in April revealed the dynamics that shape his administration better than just about anything he's done in the past three and a half years. Announced via tweet to the great surprise of many government officials, it was implemented sort of two days later in light of the attack from the invisible enemy, Trump tweeted, as well as the need to protect the jobs of our great American citizens, I will be signing an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration into the United States. Trump wrote on a Monday evening that Wednesday he signed the hastily drafted order which did not actually suspend immigration into the United States, but did restrict it further. However, you add that in a sense Trump's executive order didn't change very much, but it revealed a significant contradiction within his administration and the wider conservative coalition, the stability of which has been threatened by COVID-19. I have actually a completely different question written down, but I was ju- I was just thinking about this right before the show. How much is the left distracted by the anti-immigration rhetoric from actually looking at the anti-immigration policy and its shortcomings that might upset those who are completely opposed to immigration? Uh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't, uh, I, I think in the past like three and a half years, people have learned not to be <laughs> distracted by uh, by the rhetoric. Uh, I, I mean, when he sent out that tweet on that Monday, I remember, um, <clears throat> you know, talking to lots of immigration attorneys and, and folks who do, uh, you know, frontline organizing work, that they were, the response was kind of like, yeah, he does this all the time. Like, let's see what this actually turns into. And that, uh, you know, that, that caution, I think, was, was, was well-placed. What were the dynamics revealed by the COVID-19 immigration policy that you argue shaped the administration better than just about anything he's done in the past three and a half years? What does that immigration policy reveal to you about Trump that really just underlines exactly what his administration is about? Right. Yeah. So uh, from from my perspective, kind of the fundamental contradiction to understanding what's going on really at any given moment (laughs) in the Trump administration is looking at kind of the balance of forces between the, uh, you know, the nativists, the hardline anti-immigration people who are, you know, best exemplified and particularly in the public consciousness by Stephen Miller, um, and then kind of arrayed against them, the 
more, um, let's say, uh, the, 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 the folks that are more aligned with, with business and with capital. Um, and this administration is really about how those two factions relate to each other and how their interests are sometimes in alignment and sometimes in, in contradiction and in conflict. And this particular incident, uh, I think, was very revealing because, you know, he made this huge, this big grand declaration about uh, suspending immigration, which as a kind of categorical um, imperative. And that just wasn't at all what happened. Um, and you could see, you know, in the way that the actual order was written, um, you know, what was carved out and, and the groups of immigrants that were exempted from this so-called suspension, which is, of course, uh, farm workers, healthcare workers, rich people. <laughs> um, like th these are these are categories of immigrants that are probably uh, under the current, as I said, balance of forces, like never going to be exempted because capital at the end of the day still runs things and capital needs those people. One of the things that we were talking about with Richard Seymour a couple of weeks ago was how the old adage of it's the economy, stupid, that the economy drives all of electoral politics, that that is waning in light of the cultural wars that we're facing right now. Is being pro-business in contradiction with being anti-immigrant? And does that even matter anymore? Is Is the public now more about culture wars than they are about their bottom line? Um, I, I mean, I do, I, do think, I do think it matters. And I, and I think that the, for a long time, the contradiction has been a, a productive and a generative one for the capitalist class so long as the capitalists kind of remain the senior partner, which is to say that having a, 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 po like a politics of like nativist politics serves the interests of the capitalist class insofar as it contributes to creating an uh, oppressed and highly exploitable segment of the American working class subject to deportation at any given time or the threat of deportation at any given time um, is something that is in the interests of, of, you know, these, uh, you know, farmers and construction, huge construction firms um, that employ uh, 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 migrant labor, both undocumented and authorized. Um, so, so long as the the capitalist class is kind of in the driver's seat, they're happy to kind of <clears throat> deploy, have people deploy this rhetoric. But what we are seeing, I think, is that increasingly the the nativists and the reactionaries um, are hmm, how does how do I say this uh, dissatisfied with this arrangement and are getting closer to a taste of power kind of on their own terms, um, and and that is creating instability within this coalition. 
Did business interests then, did their criticism, even going as far as sometimes uh, demonization of immigration, simply go too far? Did they create a Frankenstein that they can no longer control? Uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of think so. <laughs> um, I, I, think that's a, I think that's a pretty good way of thinking about it. So is conservatism then facing a culture clash, clash within itself where it's pro-business at all costs, economic interests are in conflict with their culture war position of anti-immigration, including whatever racism anti-immigration may entail? entail, entail? Is there a, a, a culture civil war within conservatism between immigration and capitalism? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I, I think it's also important to, I guess I'm like hesitant to call it a culture war because that seems like such a uh, contemporary framing to think about this when really this is, uh, I think, an extension of like the long-standing contradiction between the imperatives of like it, the like the the nation state which has to create uh, uh, a national subject and and a a citizenry that understands itself as as a citizenry and in the United States as a you know white supremacist settler colonial nation state that subject and that citizenry is always already you know racialized and and the default position the default subject is is white people. Um, and so this is something that has been kind of, you know, going on for over, specifically in, in kind of the realm of immigration over a century and really longer than that. Um, so, so, you know, is there a culture, is there a culture war? Uh, yes and no, but I think that this is a, um, as I said, I think this is a, this is a contradiction that is, is, uh, it, it, it's kind of shifting um, now, and the the pandemic is really unset. I mean, it's unsettling everything everywhere, but it's unsettling this in particular. You point out the difference between the immigration policy when it comes to business interests and when it comes to those who are the uh, people who are waving Confederate flags, the neo-Nazis and the anti-vaxxers. You write, it is true that the guardrails on the president's order, his immigration order, serve the purposes of U.S. industries like agriculture and construction relying on migrant labor. But this has been the arrangement for decades. Militarized federal enforcement agencies and a robust nativist media apparatus keep immigrant workers in a state of vulnerability and precariousness through the ever-present threat of removal, which suits the capitalists who exploit them just fine, so long as they remain senior partners in that arrangement. In other words, while the capitalist class favors the expansion of deportability, they do not actually want to see everyone who qualifies deported. So the real policy of, of conservatism isn't that it's anti-immigrant, but pro-immigration, as long as you make migrants vulnerable, exploitable labor whose wages are suppressed and lack costly benefits and workplace protections, is the real conservative policy on immigration, Brendan? Sure, immigration is fine, but only if they can be thoroughly exploited. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so that's the difference between that and immigration policy and, and the far right, you know, far right's immigration policy of not having any immigrants whatsoever. How difficult is that balancing act to make a whole class of people who are incredibly vulnerable, exploitable, and precarious, and not turn them into, uh, you know, subjects of hatred? 
Uh, well, you know, for for a long time, it wasn't so difficult because it was a bipartisan project. Um, and you know, this is uh, fundamentally a, a a a shared belief among the entire ruling class. Um, how difficult is it to do that without turning migrants into a a hated subject? I mean, it's not it's not like you can't <laughs> like turning them into a hated subject is is the point, um, whether whether they want to acknowledge that or not. So you also point out that at the same time, the Supreme Court has been slowly but steadily expanding the executive branch's ability to do whatever it wants when it comes to immigration, an area where the president uh, already enjoyed a great deal of autonomy. A day after Trump signed the executive order, the court strengthened the administration's ability to deport legal residents for crimes committed while in the United States. The order itself relies on the Immigration and Nationality Act, Section 212F, which grants the executive broad authority to restrict any aliens of or of any class of aliens from entering the United States if their admission would be detrimental to the interests of the country. Does power lie within the executive branch on immigration due to immigration policy being understood as a security issue? Because I'm wondering if immigration policy is necessarily securitized as a security threat, or is that securitization unnecessary in immigrants, both the the U.S. and Mexico, as well as workers in both nations that do not migrate for the for their livelihood, would be better served by an immigration policy that's not securitized. Is the problem with immigration policy that it is seen as a security issue, or is there something else about Trump's power over immigration? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, the the fact that it is securitized that is a security issue. Um, plays a huge role in all of this. And that has certainly accelerated since um, September 11th, 2001. But kind of as I was alluding to before in terms of the contradiction between like the needs of the nation state and the needs of capital, like if you look back at the early legislation on immigration in the United States and early um, Supreme Court decisions and, and whatnot, from you know the late 19th century immigration was understood as like an issue of sovereignty um and as an issue of sovereignty it was up to the to the executive um ultimately to make decisions about it because it's the executive's role to defend the sovereignty of the united states um and so while the securitization of immigration in the past couple of decades has, as I said, has accelerated. Um, this really goes back to an understanding that like, this is about protecting the, the demographic composition um, of, of the country and, and, and also, you know, a, and also a labor issue as well. So, um, so yeah, so I think, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, but there are, there's there's many different factors that that are feeding into this, especially executive authority. We were here on our show back in the late 1990s. We were talking about the unitary executive over and over ad nauseum mm. on this show about how much power was being given to the president. Uh, the supporters of Bill Clinton wanted him to get the line item veto wherein legislation would come to the president and the president would be able to just take out any singular line in legislation, especially in budget proposals 
muscles and just eliminate it. And the law would already be passed because it was already passed by Congress. And that is just far too much presidential authority. And people were very concerned about it. You write the bitter irony here is that conservatives spent years complaining that the Obama administration had overstepped its bounds and was becoming a dictatorial force, repressing the entrepreneurial spirit of red-blooded American small business owners. So it was regarding the so it was regarding the Affordable Care Act, and so it was regarding DACA. Now it's clear that the opposition was not to broad executive th- authority as such, but only to exercising it to alleviate, however minimally, the suffering of the exploited and oppressed. So conservatism isn't opposed to executive authority. Conservatives are very much for it. So why did they attack executive authority? Why not just attack Obama's policies of DACA or the Affordable Care Act? Why take it to the step of executive authority if conservatives themselves support executive authority when they're in the White House? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good question. I I think that part of the answer to that is that this movement is not monolithic. um, and, And there certainly are conservatives who uh, have a sincere commitment to uh, reducing uh, uh, the, you know, overarching power of, of the state. Um, but I think, you know, it, like in the aggregate, this is the way that it, you know, <laughs> this, this is the way that it keeps working out. And even the, you know, when I, when I wrote that paragraph that was before the recent the Supreme Court's recent decision on DACA. uh, And I definitely was expecting it to go worse than it did. And a lot of the initial reporting on that decision was that like, oh, the Supreme Court has, has, has saved DACA. But like, really, when you read the, the, the um, justice's opinion, the, the ruling, it's about like, you know, the conservative justice were like, you, you like, we're not telling you that you can't get rid of DACA. You just aren't doing it the right way. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there, there's no like inclination to, to limit, uh, to limit the executive's authority. Um, at least in that instance, if the, if the, protesters today, the far right protesters that we were seeing, like at the state capitol in Michigan, the armed protesters went to state capitals occupying them. In Michigan, armed protesters in the legislature's gallery as they were voting on what to do about the armed protesters. (laughs) How are they not the Tea Party movement? Because you argue that this is something different from 2011, uh, 2008, even at the starting of the very beginning of the Tea Party movement, because that's the way many people are describing the protesters, that they are simply the Tea Party that has, I don't want to say evolved, uh, <laughs> has <laughs> turned into something else by 2020. Right. Well, I mean, I do think you know, I, I don't think that's entirely wrong. And also, you know, just as you were just referring to that, it feels like that that particular protest at the Michigan State House was like a million years ago now. Um, but uh, I think you know a major difference is that in a in a strange way, uh, you know, this isn't, this isn't entirely true. But you know, this this, this more recent movement is more organic than the Tea Party was, which isn't to say at all that it doesn't have the backing of, you know, institutional forces and, and, and institutional parts of institutional conservatism. It does. Um, but the, 
you know, the, the, the massive Coke apparatus, uh, by and large is kind of washing its hands of, um, of, of the reopen, uh, uh, protesters, um, largely because I think, you know, this is another instance where major swaths of the capitalist class and of, of business, of business understand that like, they can't just let, you know, the coronavirus run its way through the labor force. <laughs> like, like they need workers to be healthy in order to work. Um, and so there's a certain degree of, you know, there, again, there's, there's a conflict and a contradiction there between the interests of, of business um, and this kind of more uh, ideological uh, creature that is kind of acting on its own somewhat autonomously now. So how much impact how much of uh, how much do you think that they led to their actions led to the reopening because you point out that they're very much in the minority these people who are occupying state capitals they're very much in the minority so how much of an influence do you think that this very vocal minority voice had on the decision to reopen too early is this all the dumb far right's fault <laughs> No, 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 I, I, I would never ascribe a single actor, you know, responsibility for something as massive as, uh, you know, reopening the economy. But I do think that they sort of lent um, certainly a spectacle um, and, and, and lent some amount of force to the more either you could say ruthless or myopic um, segments of the capitalist class that that do actually need the economy to be open. Like, you know, it, it, it's, it's the big bourgeoisie that can weather these sorts of storms. Small business owners and, and small businesses, um, the kind of like entrepreneurial class within the bourgeoisie, like, are much more vulnerable to these kinds of uh, uh, you know external events like a like a global pandemic. How do the Kochs benefit from their funding of reopening the economy too soon? If it's not good for the long-term interests of the econ- economy, why are the Kochs for it? It would seem like it's undermining their own self-interest, but as we know, trying to guess what somebody's own self-interest is and that they would be supporting that own, that self-interest has been problematic over the last, I don't know, 20 years. So so how do the uh, Cokes benefit from reopening the economy too soon? Uh, good question. Um I mean again, I think I think that this is this is another another front where there's a coalition that has been rendered unstable um, because, you know, in the sort of cent- like the um, uh, Americans for Prosperity, which is a sort of central node of the Koch network, um, you have these officials and operatives really taking, at least a few months ago, taking a pretty cautious approach to reopening. And then other more peripheral parts of the network 
pushing really hard to reopen. So I think it's hard to say that, you know, whether one or the other is kind of like the true position of, you know, the Coke brothers or Coke industries um, as, as, as a singular en entity. Um, but I think we also can't ignore the fact that like these are people, many of these people are people whose like job it is to be ideologues and like, and are the kind of creatures of ideological struggles that have led them into these, this like kind of bizarre fetishization of, uh, uh, of, of, of work and entrepreneurship, um, and and the economy and so like kind of they're just willing to sacrifice everybody else at the altar of you know just getting things up up and running um not because there's necessarily as you say like any long-term good outcomes to come from that but just because they feel that it is the right thing to do how necessary are anti-vaxxers are neo-confederates today to any success for conservatism. How does conservatism benefit from associating with neo-Confederates and anti-vaxxers? Because if they're that reliant and that dependent on these groups of conspiracy theorists, that, you know, that's, that's a, that should be a serious concern. So, so how reliant, how dependent are they? Can, can, can conservatism have any success without neo-Confederates and anti-vaxxers and neo-Nazis and all of those fringe far-right groups? Hmm. Can, uh, I mean, yes, I think so, but it would require basically, uh, <laughs> like re like a major realignment between elements of the Republican Republican party and elements of the democratic party. And like it would, and I think what you are sort of alluding to is a sort of like consolidation into like one singular party of capital, um, which, which I think would be able to continue its dominance. Um, but that doesn't at the moment, doesn't really seem to be on the table. You mentioned uh, somebody who's on the far right, a protester in Chicago who went so far as to express themselves in the terms that chillingly welcomed Jews to Auschwitz with a sign that read, Arbeit macht frei, J.B., Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker is Jewish. In Michigan and Kentucky, demonstrators hanged their governors in effigy. Another anti-lockdown protester who bore a sign accusing Jews of being the real plague had been previously photographed at a white power rally with Timothy Wilson, who planned to bomb a hospital in Missouri and died of injuries sustained during an attempted arrest by federal agents in March. He was an active participant in Telegram chats affiliated with two neo-Nazi groups, Nick Martin of The Informant reports. How aware are the protesters that the protests they are attending are being, to a certain extent, organized by neo-Nazis? And would they even care if you told them? Yeah, I mean, I think it varies. Uh, there are, you know, the, the, there was a, um, you know, some of, the, some of these protests are being organized by, by, by like, you know, far-right reactionaries, and some of them are being organized by more mainstream groups and are just attracting um, these, uh, you know, other extremists, they're definitely, many of them are definitely aware. There was one Michigan, I believe, 
Michigan State GOP operative, I believe, who in a like Facebook chat was warning people like, look, like, please don't show up with Confederate flags. <laughs> like, like, you know, I'm not against it, but it's just, you know, think about the optics. Um, so, you know, so they're, they're aware, um, but are not willing to take a, you know, a hard line against, um, against these folks, uh, because, Either they are, you know, because they're sympathetic, because they, you know, want to just walk the fence, because they don't want to alienate them. It kind of doesn't matter. Um, the fact of them, the the fact is that they are present and self evidently welcome. To what extent? Because you mentioned this in your article. To what extent is the U.S. trying to pressure or succeeding at pressuring other nations to reopen earlier early too early is the trump admission uh, trump administration uh, exporting the reopen early policy uh yeah as best they can and certainly within the kind of um spheres of imperial influence uh they are they are definitely doing that and the most egregious examples that i cited in in my piece or the maquilladoras in um in mexico on on the border with the united states where you know there are factories that are uh manufacturing components for 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 um uh you know various military contractors um u.s military contractors and the pentagon you know is, is trying to pressure the mexican federal government and and the state governments um to keep those factories open and the workers are like <laughs> no <laughs> like, like people are dying <laughs> So you write the absence of a unified, coherent response to the public health crisis has not been simply a function of Donald Trump's incompetence and narcissism. It is an inevitable outcome of the bipartisan commitment to neoliberal governance and the maintenance of U.S. empire, in other words, to capitalism. How is the commitment to capitalism different in the U.S. than elsewhere? Because the U.S. is the epicenter of the virus right now. So how is capitalism in the U.S. different that makes it more vulnerable to crises like a pandemic. Right. I mean, I, I think uh, this has a lot to do with the, you know, it has a lot to do with the way that the, the labor movement has been crushed uh, here in the past half a century. The fact that there are, um, you know, even as they drift ever further and further to the right, other major uh, developed countries have something approaching sort of social democracy where there are uh, limits imposed on what their, you know, national bourgeoisie and, and like their national trend capitalist classes can get away with. Um, and we just don't have that here. Like we are, in the the you know the beating heart of global capitalism and here you know they just get to do whatever they want and it turns out that whatever they want is like not even actually very good for capitalism <laughs> like like it's completely unstable um 
and and I think we are really, you know, still in kind of the beginning stages of of, of seeing what kind of damage um, is going to be done. And it's going to be significant. You write that alongside the dregs of the Tea Party, the graying remnants of the Patriot movement and the fractured remains of the alt-right, a younger, more extreme cohort of fascists has been working out its politics behind innumerable layers of irony and obscure memes, primarily in Discord chats and an interlocking network of Telegram channels known as Terrorgram. White supremacists in the United States and elsewhere have long fantasized about an apocalyptic race war that would restore them and their people to power. This was the myth articulated in the Turner Diaries by William Pierce, a.k.a. Andrew McDonald, which directly inspired Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. McVeigh is heralded on Terrorgram as a saint, along with more recent killers like Dylan Roof and others. Can the economic interests of conservatism keep the far right from getting the race war they want, Brendan? Uh, That is the trillion dollar question <laughs> um i don't know <laughs> I, I i i i do not have a good answer to that um it seems to be the case that for now um yes that that is acting as a as a bulwark but you know, for so long as it continues to act as a bulwark, like then it is also radicalizing people on the right um, and and pushing them further into these sorts of uh, ideas and these sorts of spaces. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I I I, tr- I truly don't know. <laughs> That's not a good sign if you if you truly don't know. So uh, you point out that behind the American death drive's most spectacular expressions, whether found in extremist chat rooms or a swimming pool bar in the Lake of the Ozarks, there lies a sense of exhaustion, a nihilistic shrug at the very idea of politics, even as the nested crises of our time collapse upon one another to in vivid fashion. Such nihilism serves the purposes of the ruling class, but the progressive neoliberal faction and the conservative, uh, sorry, both the progressive neoliberal faction and the conservative ethno-nationalists. How does nihilism help the ruling class? And is the ruling class promoting a sense of life being meaningless? What, how, does, how does that benefit them? How does getting people to believe that life is meaningless help out the ruling class? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's a it's a combination of, of of well, I think that nihilism is kind of a response to this process of um, like depoliticization uh, and and the kind of uh, 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 removal of politics and you know popular democracy from every sphere of our lives in the United States. Um, and inevitably, like when people feel that they have no control or no say over the things that happen in, you know, in, 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 in their workplaces, in their, um, you know, the buildings where they live, I think turn it like a, a nihilistic turn is, uh, maybe not inevitable, but is certainly to be expected and unsurprising. 
Um, and then in that nihilism, there emerges this, I think like fascism sort of preys on, on preys on that nihilism. Um, and, and you get these, these violent, these deeply violent, um, tendencies growing out of it. You also point out that Trump's trade war with uh, China continues to escalate, pushing the world ever closer toward a period of deglobalization that might set the stage for a new ultranationalism to rise in the dying empire, either led or tended to by fascists. And yesterday, the Trump administration announced that they wanted the Chinese consulate in Texas and Houston to close down. So how can a trade war with China provoke fascism here in the United States? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the, the conflict between, I mean, what we saw in, in kind of fascism's classical period, which is to say like the early 20th century, um, the first half of the 20th century, is that the clash between imperial powers was a major factor in creating the conditions for, uh, for fascism's rise. Um, and I think this coincides with the the nihilism that I that we were speaking about just just previously, insofar as this is a kind like that that nationalism ultra nationalism is a kind of you know it's a meaningful narrative and it's a meaningful story that people can can be told and can tell each other and themselves um, that reinscribes their lo- lives with significance. Um, and you know, how this relates to, how this relates to the trade war is, is that, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it remains to be seen, remains to be seen how this is going to play out. Um, but if there, if we are entering a period of deglobalization, that is necessarily going to have to be accompanied by a kind of period of, 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 of protectionism um and 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 you know restoring national greatness and obviously those ideas are kind of already very much in in the ether um and yeah so so that that i think is the connection between between the trade war and and you know and we kind of already see the what i think may be the antecedents of this with the conspiracy theorizing about um uh, about the origins of of the coronavirus and calling it the you know the 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 Wuhan virus or the Wuhan flu and the Chi- and the Chinese virus um, that like these ideas are already spreading either of their own accord or by you know bad actors. It's not totally clear to me. You conclude by writing confronted with a global pandemic and masses of people in the streets demanding justice for the victims of police terror. The post-Trump American right turns apocalyptic, millenarian, feeling besieged. The powerful invoke a kaleidoscopic array of conspiracy theories to terrify and animate their loyal supporters. The small business tyrants, the entrepreneurial vampires, the self-made heirs to family fortunes, the cops. Their politics are reduced to three principles, domination, humiliation, and exploitation. Very little stands between us and the abyss is the right being played into its own domination its own oppression its own exploitation humiliation 
is it being played into it? What do you mean? Like that they uh, have been simply duped by the wealth. Yesterday we were talking to Gerald Horn, the historian Gerald Horn, and we were discussing the cross-class, the class collaborationist projects of things like racism and how uh, people are, you know, uh, that how that undermines any kind of class consciousness or attention to class. So is is the right just being, is the far right, are these people who are the people who show up at these protests at state capitals, are they just being played? Are they just being manipulated by uh, into its own domination, into its own exploitation by the ruling class? Uh, I mean, the, the simple answer to that is 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 yes um i i do i do think so but i also think that it's important not to overemphasize like the nature of the duping because i do think that many of these people understand themselves to be acting in their own self-interest and and i think that that is probably true in the short term um you know this you know this kind of fundamentally boils down to like the uh, to the question of like the material benefits ascribed by by whiteness, um, or at least the at the very least the 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 perception of the material interests ascribed by whiteness and and defending whiteness as a kind of material benefit. Um, so, are they being are they being duped? Uh, I, I think they're being deceived um, about what is best for everyone in the long term. But then the question is, like, do they actually care about everyone? And clearly the answer is no. They care about themselves. One last question for you, Brendan. I actually have two questions, but I just don't have time, unfortunately. One last question (laughs) for you, Brendan. And uh, we have been speaking with writer and journalist Brendan O'Connor, who wrote the Baffler magazine piece, The Accelerating Gyre, The American Right Wants to Get On with the Cleansing Fire. You can find out more about Brendan at brendan-oconnor.com. You can follow Brendan on Twitter at underscore Grendon. This is Brendan's second appearance on This Is Hell. He was on our show back in October of 2018 to talk about his Baffler article, Boys to Men, about the far-right Proud Boys, who also come up in Brendan's writing that we've been speaking about today. One last question for you, Brendan, and as always, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. I wanted to ask you about, you know, why every time it seems that uh, capital is prevailing over the drive toward ethno-nationalism, why that drive gets stronger, because that's a scary answer. But let's get to this one. You write that (laughs) These accelerationists were seen at anti-lockdown protests, decked out in assault rifles, tactical gear, and Hawaiian shirts in honor of the Big Luau, a play on Boogaloo, a reference to an internet meme glorifying the coming of a second civil war, a race war, i.e. Civil War II electric Boogaloo. These Boogaloo boys were arrested for bringing explosive to an, explosives to an anti-police brutality demonstration in Las Vegas. They had previously been active in reopen Nevada protests, which they were frustrated, had not taken an insurrectional turn. So now, Brendan, we have federal troops in Portland, Oregon. We have them supposedly coming here to Chicago, and our mayor turned from being against them to now she's looking forward to a partnership with them, which is fantastic. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Are federal troops currently doing the work of accelerations, uh, accelerationists? Is this Trump trying to use the government to promote, provoke an acceleration toward the race war that the far right wants? 
okay. <laughs> to the second, I'll answer the second part first, which is I, I don't know if Trump understands that that is what he is doing or if that is the intent. Um, but to the first part of your question, it is clearly true that um, the police and the you know federal forces are an accelerant in these um, in in these protests. Uh, you know, if you have spent any time either at the recent in the recent protest movement or or really like kind of <laughs> any time that there is a, a, a conflict with between demonstrators and cops like it is almost always the case that the cops start start like start things that they you know they shoot first they 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 you know they lose their cool um and 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 so yeah i think that introducing uh dhs uh agents to these cities um is only going to escalate uh, re-escalate the the protest movement um, and what direction that will take. I, I I don't really think that a I don't really think that like a race war is is anywhere on the on on the horizon. Um, but it is certainly true that that the uh, that it only contributes to um, instability, uh, which creates opportunities. For both the the left and the right, and and really the question is like who will be better positioned to take advantage of those opportunities? From your lips to Allah's ears, let's hope, Brendan. Brendan, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Journalist Brendan O'Connor wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Accelerating Gyre. The American right wants to get on with the cleansing fire. You can find out more about Brendan at brendan-o'connor.com. And you can find our past interview with Brendan at our website, thisishell.com. Brendan is also, uh, Brendan is working right now on a new book about immigration capitalism and the far right for Haymarket. And we look forward to having Brendan back on the show when that book is published. Thank you so much for being on our show again, Brendan. This really has been a pleasure, and this article is fascinating and frightening, and I think everybody should read it, especially today, now that we're in a partnership with freaking shock troops. This is ridiculous. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brendan. I really appreciate it. All right, thank you. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Richard Norwood, or today's show, I should say, is Richard Norwood. This week's question from L is, what will finally unite the left? What will finally unite the left? The person with our favorite answer gets a This Is Hell face mask, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from L at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Again, this week's question from L is, what will finally unite the left? Braden says, pissing on Kissinger's grave. That will unite the left. That will be a very large, very large, very large lake of urine. Gorilla Gramophonics says Lin-Manuel Miranda's new bluegrass musical Jackson starring John Bolton streaming now on Disney Plus. That is fantastic. That's that's fantastic. Lin-Manuel Miranda's new bluegrass musical Jackson starring John Bolton streaming now on Disney Plus. Aaron says secretly dosing the LaCroix water source with acid. John says exposing the Loch Ness monster to air and then he sends a JPEG of some sort of seven-headed monster. I don't know. What will finally unite the left? Garrett says, sadly and unfortunately, probably a prison cell. 
Edmar says, free weed? Gotta love Edmar. Benedict says, immiseration, widespread immiseration. Darren says, what will finally unite the left? Darren sends a gif from the Simpsons of a reanimated Lenin busting out of his glass coffin and coming to life like some sort of rebooted Frankenstein. Laddie says a crater. Nick says inexorable extinction. Adam says what will unite the left? Nothing. Nothing will unite the left because nothing's ever united the left. As it turns out, questioning your own authority is too big of an obstacle for lefties, even as authoritarianism threatens to crush us all. Benjamin says a Mobius strip. Marr says Stalin. Jeffy says the return of Juan Jesus Posadas aboard the extraterrestrial mothership, capitalized, probably in a forum he'll take to help our fragile minds accept his miraculous second coming, like maybe a Muppet guru who transposes the subject clauses of his sentences to the ends of them, as in, returned I have, to lead the revolution I have come. Craig says liberals becoming socialists. Fabio says implying such a thing that the left could actually be united is is possible, is liberal hogwash, an anti-leftist. Marco says the power of love, or maybe a well-organized third political party, I don't know. And Paolo says Soviet glue. Again, email us your answer to this week's question from hell, what will finally unite the left to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com, Alex at ThisIsHell.com. Post your answers at our Facebook page. Tweet them to us at ThisIsHellRadio. We will be announcing the winner of this week's Question from Hell and a This Is Hell medical face mask tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now during tomorrow's Moment of Truth. Jeff wants to sell you another improved fascism on tomorrow's Thursday's live show streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This is hell.com. Note, not only will there be Jeff Dorchin in a moment of truth, but we will also have yet another returning guest, returning guests all week this week for the first time. Ben Ehrenreich will talk about his new book, Desert Notebooks, A Roadmap for the End of Time. Tune in to tomorrow's streaming live show at 10 a.m. Chicago time, 10 a.m. Chicago time, to hear the podcast, to hear the show, live stream, and to find out if you've won this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing. Today's show, Richard Norwood. Richard, I cannot thank you enough for spelling Alex while he can, so he can go to his kid's birthday party. Happy birthday, Lee. Thanks to Richard. Thanks to Brendan O'Connor, our guest. Thanks to Alex Jerry for setting Richard up. With my most sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude. But keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.